We're going to continue in our study of 2 Corinthians today. We'll be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. So if you're able, please stand as we read God's word together. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in inflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet are not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Jesus, the name above every name, the name by which salvation comes. Father, thank you for the every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is eternal. Who is, who is man to try to, to expound on your word, to exposit your word? Father, I pray that anything that is said this morning that is not of you will be quickly forgotten. Only what is from you remain. Father, I pray that you would help us as we, we treasure your word, as we seek your truth. Thank you that you have not been silent, but you have spoken to us. Father, I pray that this morning you will be glorified in all that we do and say. Amen. So in scripture and in church history... We read the story of those who paid the ultimate price to preach the gospel. And one such man was Pastor Jean-Paul Senkagi, a pastor of the Central African Republic, C.A.R. In 1993, Pastor Jean-Paul planted. He and his wife and children shared the gospel, loving the people around them. Twenty years later, he was still ministering when civil war broke out in the C.A.R., In that time of instability and need, many in the congregation fled the area, but he felt called to stay, even though the friendliness and eventually even the tolerance for a local Christian church disappeared. And so it was that he was at the church building on February 7, 2017, when Islamist shot Pastor Jean-Paul to death outside his church building before looting and burning his house and church. 
Five other evangelical pastors in the region were also killed the first five weeks of 2017. Pastor Jean-Paul knew the danger. He knew his safety was at risk. And yet he also knew the call of God to proclaim the gospel. Revelation 12:11 says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Our enemy, the accuser of the brethren, is conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Pastor Jean Paul loved not his life even unto death. His ministry was characterized by sacrifice. That sacrifice is evidence that his ministry is authentic. So if someone questioned his ministry, we'd point to the characteristics of his ministry and say, you know, namely sacrifice, and say it's, it's genuine. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul defends his ministry by talking about the characteristics of his ministry. He tells us how he does ministry. We know that Paul spends the first seven chapters of the book seeking reconciliation with the Corinthians, not because he had done anything wrong to them, but because they had wronged him. And he also defends his ministry and his apostleship to them. False teachers at Corinth attacked Paul's character and spread lies about him. Heading the list was that Paul had no real affection for them, that he was abusive and manipulative and dictatorial. Satan's tactics haven't changed. Throughout history, God's servants have endured slanderous false accusations. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 24 and 25, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? If they malign Jesus, how much more will they do so to us, his disciples? In order to discredit the message, those false teachers at Corinth tried to discredit Paul's ministry. So he vigorously defends his ministry, and by that, the truth of the gospel. In the first 13 verses of chapter 6, Paul defends his ministry describing how he does it, and in the process, Paul sets the standard for biblical ministry. Now, you may be saying, okay, what does that have to do with me? I'm not a minister. Make no mistake, each of us have a ministry. Every New Testament saint is a minister of the gospel, and our calling is the bare ministers of the new covenant. Ephesians 4.12 tells us that it's the saints, the church members, who do the work of ministry. Church leadership does ministry, yes, but more importantly, equips the church to do ministry. Every person is to do ministry. The characteristics of Paul's ministry should be the same characteristics that we see in our own ministry. How we do ministry is how Paul did ministry, or should be. So what are the characteristics of Paul's ministry? Well, verse 1 starts out, working together with him. Our mission statement says, Remedy Church exists to glorify God by fostering biblical community, joining Jesus on mission and practicing intentional care. Amazingly, God has chosen to work through us 
in bringing his kingdom. So in his sovereign plan, he didn't just whisk us to heaven at salvation, right? But instead, he commissioned us to take part in his great work of grace among men and women. So what a privilege to take part in such a plan. So just as our mission statement says, we are joining Jesus on mission. And that's what Paul's talking about here. What's our part? Our work is the proclamation of the gospel. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So why was Paul so focused on the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16. Only the gospel can save. Only the gospel transforms men and women. And working together with God, then, God uses our words to draw people to himself. Romans 10.14. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So we speak the gospel. God is the one who does the regeneration. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7. I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Our ministry, as it turns out, isn't really ours at all, but it's God's. And yet he uh, invites us to join him in that ministry. Paul's ministry was legitimate because it wasn't just Paul, but he was faithful to proclaim the gospel as a co-laborer with Christ. So uh, so that's the first uh, characteristic of, of ministry, is working together with God. The second characteristic is appealing. Now, I don't mean appealing as in uh, uh, an adjective, as in our ministry is pleasing, but I'm talking about appealing as a verb. In ministry, in ministry we implore or appeal to others uh, to receive the grace of God through the gospel. If you look at verse 1, working together with them then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. What does it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? Well, there are at least three interpretations, so stick with me for a minute on this. Okay, so one interpretation is that you can receive reconciliation from God and then fall away from grace. That is, you can lose your salvation. Well, that goes against the whole of Scripture. So some will modify that and say, well, the person wasn't really saved to begin with. They'll point to 1 John 2.19, which says, They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So that certainly happens, but I don't think that that's what Paul's talking about in this passage. The verb translated received is in the infinitive aorist tense. It means to receive and keep on receiving. So you can't receive and keep on receiving something that you never got in the first place. He's not talking about pretenders who leave the church. A second interpretation is that it means that you receive reconciliation from God and yet continue in sin. But nowhere in Scripture does Paul assume that we can accept one benefit of redemption and reject another. We can't accept. 
This uh, interpretation also assumes that Paul is jumping from subject to subject. Uh, it assumes Paul's talking to Christians in verse 1, exhorting them not to sin, then jumping over to address unbelievers in verse 2, urging them to come to Christ today. Instead, what we see is one continuous th thought throughout this passage. The then in verse 1 connects Paul's thought to what he just said in chapter 5. So at the end of chapter 5, Paul implores the Corinthians to be reconciled to God through the gospel. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So then Paul exhorts all men not to receive this grace of God in vain, that is, not to reject this great salvation. The connection between verse 1 and 2 is clearer then. Don't receive the grace of God in vain by rejecting the gospel, for now is the day of salvation. So the interpretation that best fits the context is that Paul is saying, I've been preaching the gospel to you over and over. Don't receive this grace of God in vain by rejecting the gospel. Paul poured his life into the Corinthians, especially during his long stay at Corinth. But events in Corinth caused him to fear that his labor may have been for nothing. False teachers had arisen among the flock. In 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received. Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So Paul was concerned that the Corinthians receive the grace in regard to salvation, the gospel, in vain. He appeals, he implores them to receive the gospel. And we should do no less. We should appeal to others to receive the gospel. The third characteristic of Paul's ministry is urging. So you're going to say, okay, what's the difference between appealing and urging? It sounds pretty similar. Well, the difference is the time element. So urging contains urgency. It requires swift action. Verse 2, for he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The first part of verse 2 is a quote from Isaiah 49.8. And is it, this is common in prophetic scripture. Where, um, in, in this case, Isaiah speaks of Israel, but the final meaning is Christ. So um, you see this a lot in prophetic scripture. A classic example is Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Well, you'll probably recognize that last part of the verse. In Matthew 2, it says that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child, Jesus, and his mother and flee to Egypt. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. In verse 2, Paul quotes Isaiah 49.8 to explain that there's a time and a day in which grace and salvation may be obtained. The apostle then adds to this quote by way of application, 
Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. There's a time in God's grace when he may be sought by sinners. The present time is the only proper season to accept the grace that's offered. I've heard Pastor John say, when you share the gospel, ask the person if they want to receive Christ. If someone says they might be interested in becoming a Christian sometime, ask them, why not right now? Why don't you do it right now? In John 9.4, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Do you feel the urgency? The fields are ripe for harvest. The next characteristic of Paul's ministry is that he's not a stumbling block to anyone. So put positively, he is aiding people to come to Christ. Verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Paul was careful to give no offense other than the offense of the gospel. So if Paul was rejected, he wanted it to be for the offense of the gospel, not because of his liberty in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, he says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. The application is this. Are you willing to give up your rights for the sake of the gospel? What is your equivalent to eating meat sacrificed to idols? Is it eating certain things or drinking certain things in a time or a way that puts a stumbling block in someone else's path? You have the right to a political view. And in this country, you can, you can speak your mind or post or tweet, but do you value your earthly citizenship above the citizenship of your true home in heaven? Are you winsome in sharing the gospel? Or do you let lesser things get in the way? The next seven verses, Paul uses three sets of nine characteristics each to describe his ministry. The first set of nine is in verses four and five. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Paul commends his ministry, and the first way is through great endurance. And then he lists nine ways, three sets of three, in which he has endured. In English, we have one word for commend. But Greek has several words with nuanced meanings. Uh, The word translated commend that we see here in verse 4, is sunestemi, literally, to place together. So it's used when you introduce one person to another and represent them as worthy. The word is also used in Romans 16, 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Centuria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. And help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So Paul introduced Phoebe to the church at Rome, and he commended in the name of the saints. So he's saying, she's worthy, so welcome her in a worthy way. In our passage, Paul continues the defense of his ministry by representing it as worthy. So why is his ministry worthy? First of all, because of endurance. Paul endured in these nine types of trial. 
trials. Now, if Paul was uh, in ministry for comfort, to make a lot of money, to have an easy life, he would not have endured these things. Endurance marked Paul's life. Ambassadors of Christ do not seek greater comfort or prosperity, but greater endurance. Paul gives nine examples of endurance, three sets of three. The first set of three is endurance and suffering. Paul endured suffering in the form of afflictions. Afflictions are present pains, persistent pains and distress. Paul endured suffering in hardships. He may do without conveniences and even necessities for the sake of the gospel. Paul endured in suffering calamities. Calamities are disastrous events. Far from causing the ministry to be blamed, Paul commends his ministry by the fortitude by which he endured sufferings. Second set of three ways Paul commends his ministry is by enduring persecution. Paul endured beatings. He endured imprisonments, Acts 20, 22, and 23. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul endured riots, such as the riot at Ephesus recorded in Acts 19. The third way, then, that Paul commends his ministry is by uh, is enduring through sacrifices. So unlike persecution, where it's something that's caused, it's suffering caused by others, this is something that uh, Paul was willing to uh, sacrifice for in order to uh, promote the gospel. And you see these in verse 5, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Paul sacrificially labored on behalf of the ministry, giving up sleep, going without food, all for the sake of the gospel. Acts Second uh, uh, Corinthians 11 talks about this. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and the day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So the application for us is this. Are you willing to give up your time for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to lose sleep or miss a meal? This brings us then to the second set of nine characteristics. Paul commends his ministry to the Corinthians by nine sanctifying characteristics. Verses 6 and 7. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Just as Paul had commended his ministry by pointing to endurance in various trials, here he talks about sanctifying characteristics of his ministry. Purity rightfully heads the list. 
Without personal holiness, there is no ministry. Your actions and attitudes scream so loudly that no one can hear anything that you're saying. Peter calls believers to holiness in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The second of nine sanctifying characteristics of Paul's ministry is knowledge. Knowledge should be a characteristic of our ministry as well. How do you acquire knowledge? Read the Bible. Reading the Bible is so basic and so crucial to the Christian life, yet so neglected. You figure out how to eat every day, figure out how to feast on God's word every day. As you read and study the Bible, don't forget the first characteristic we just talked about, purity. So we don't pursue knowledge just for knowledge's sake, but to learn about God so that we can know him and glorify him and enjoy his presence forever. The third sanctifying characteristic of Paul's ministry is patience. Paul demonstrates tremendous patience with the Corinthians. They're spiritually immature, they're slanderous, they're ungrateful, and yet Paul patiently labored with them to see them become more like Jesus. That should encourage us to do exactly the same thing. When we want to give up on people, remember Paul's example. The fourth characteristic is the spiritual fruit of kindness. Now, when you're reading through Scripture, be on the lookout for summary statements. So those are statements where the author says, okay, all these things that we've been talking about, these are really important, but it comes down to this. Here's the essence. A great example is uh, the first and second great commandments, right? Love God, love people. Matthew twenty two forty says, On these two commandments depend the, all the law and the prophets. So if you do these two things, you will be fulfilling what the law and the prophets tell you to do. Another great summary is from Micah 6, 8. It's if the prophet's saying, Let me boil this down for you. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We are to love kindness. It should be a characteristic of our life and ministry. Fifth, the Holy Spirit. Paul commends his ministry by the evidence that the Holy Spirit was at work. Paul preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. He prayed in the Spirit. Paul walked in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was within him. He had gifts as manifestations of the Spirit. He set his mind on the things of the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. He was sanctified by the Spirit. And finally, the Corinthians themselves were a letter from Christ written by the Holy Spirit. Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your ministry? Or are you carrying it out in the power of the flesh? The sixth sanctifying characteristic of Paul's ministry is genuine love. In the first inspired letter to the Corinthians, Paul spoke at length about love. Without love, the spiritual gifts of the Corinthians were nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers so as to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In the same way, if our ministry is not characterized by love, we're noisy gongs or clanging cymbals, and we gain nothing. The seventh sanctifying characteristic of Paul's ministry was truthful speech. Just a few weeks ago, we saw in chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul said, But we have renounced disgraceful, disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience by, in the sight of God. A characteristic of Paul's ministry was that he spoke the gospel. He didn't change it. He didn't add to it. The gospel is the timeless and glorious word of God. It has the power to save. We don't change it to tickle itching ears. The eighth characteristic is the power of God. What does Paul mean by this, the power of God? Well, we've already quoted from Romans 1.16, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So do you want power in your ministry? Do you want to see people come to know Jesus? then speak the gospel. It is the power of God. The last characteristic in the second set of nine is with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Ministry is spiritual warfare. We have an adversary who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. To wage battle in this spiritual realm, we need weapons of righteousness. Paul expands on this theme in Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Paul then goes on to talk about truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. These are our weapons that we're to take up in our ministry. The next three verses contain our third group of nine, which are sets of contrasts. Paul maintained consistency and integrity under all circumstances. His message didn't change whether his preaching was approved or disapproved. Verses 8 to 10, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. If you're faithful in your ministry, speaking forth the gospel, you will be loved and hated. 
You will be cherished and vilified. Opposition to your ministry doesn't mean it's wrong. If people applaud you, it doesn't mean it's right. Paul was faithful to the message of the gospel through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Regardless of the response of the people, he sought to please the Lord, not men. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ and yet was treated as an imposter by some of the Corinthians. He was a virtual unknown to most people in the world, and yet the saints through the ages know him very well. Paul was constantly exposed to death. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says that they were in danger every hour. He was punished by earthly authorities and suffered much. Many times death seemed inevitable, yet there he was. There's another sense in which Paul was both dead and alive. We live in a fallen world. We die of disease and disasters like all humans. But for those who are in Christ, the sting of death has been removed. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Philippians 1, 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To depart and be with Christ, Philippians 1.23. A friend of ours in Atlanta, Heather, has cancer that has metastasized to her brain and her brain stem. A month ago, she was given two to three months to live. Heather and her husband, whom she calls Tony Honey, his name's Tony, uh, raised two boys of their own and then adopted two special needs African-American girls. Heather told hospice her goal was to die well. In a recent post, she said, I'm in a win-win situation. If God gives me more time in this life I love, with the people I love, I will woohoo, happy dance and give him all the glory. If he calls me home in this hard thing, I will cry and plan and do everything possible to help my amazing tribe transition through this with love and joy and grace in the grieving. He knows my heart because he created it and he lives in it. My vote is simply to go to sleep and wake up running to him who I long to see. But it occurred to me earlier in this process that suffering for a while can make it much easier for the loved ones to let go of their wife or mom when the time comes. His will, his plan, his way, Heather. Verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This is one of the paradoxes of Christian practice and experience. A paradox, you know, is is something that looks like a contradiction but isn't. So the believer can experience true joy in the midst of sorrow, knowing that these light, momentary afflictions are preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As poor yet making many rich, another paradox. Paul, Paul was poor in this world's goods yet imparted true riches to others. He had no property, yet as a fellow heir of Christ, possessed all things. Verses 11 through 13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. The final characteristic of love, Paul returns to love. Paul was open 
and candid with the, the Corinthians. Even after all the sorrow they had caused him, he still loved them. That's because love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It does not mean, of course, that Paul tolerated their sin, and certainly not false doctrine. He disciplined and corrected them because of his affection for them. Paul had done nothing to restrict his affections for the Corinthians, yet they restricted themselves. He longs for his affection for them to be reciprocated. Our ministries should embody the characteristic of love. This isn't a good feeling that we simply generate. Uh, it's, that would be like the, the moon shines not because it generates light, right? Because it reflects light. And we love and we're able to love because God gen- regenerated us. He puts his spirit in us. He's sanctifying us. And that's why we reflect his love. We love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. Remember the Central African Republic pastor, Jean-Paul? So he and his wife and children shared the gospel, loving the people around him for 20 years. When civil war came to the area, he heeded God's call to stay and be a testimony characteristic of Pastor Jean-Paul's ministry was sacrifice. But it was also characterized and motivated by love. Our ministry is to preach the gospel to others. That's what we do. But how we do it, the characteristics of our ministry are why people listen. Do the characteristics of your ministry, how you live your life, provide evidence for or against what you say? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, which is convicting and encouraging. Father, I pray that you use your word to sanctify us. May our ministries um, be like Paul's ministry. Father, help us to um, see many come to, into your kingdom. Father, use us as your instrument. Thank you for inviting us to be part of your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.